You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. Back and this is John. John, how are you, my friend? I'm good. How are you? I'm happy to be here today. I just made it. Do you know that this is John's third podcast today? <laughs> third today? Yeah. So, to be fair, I, I I used to have my own podcast, so I do enjoy doing them. But um, but yeah, it's one of those things as well, isn't it? You want to talk about it whilst it's fresh. The longer it goes by, then the less you remember and the, the more the pain fades from the memory. So I always think it's good to do the autopsy of these things as close to as immediately after as you can. But, but uh, yeah, it's all good. It's all good. Are you on fumes right now at this point in the day? No, I'm good. I've uh, just eaten, so I'm uh, fully carb-loaded and prepped and ready. Good to go. Ooh. If I saw right, you you wanted to get back to building some muscle now as a muscly guy. You were all you were all sad about those muscle losses during this venture, huh? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Like, I remember, so I was 185 kilograms as a strong man and got down to about 110. And I remember thinking, oh, I want to get sub-100 kilograms and then I'll look more like a runner and be better as a runner and got I'm down to that body weight now and I hate how I look. And the thing is the thing is for me, I'm never I'm never gonna be a competitive runner. I'm too heavy, too old, got too many injuries and I've started too late in life. So for me it's all about completion of running events and taking part and as rather than trying to get to the front of the field. And um, so yeah, for me it's striking that balance between how I look how I feel, how I perform. But I also want to go back and compete in Strongman next year. I want to try and win the British title at my body weight and then complete an Ironman in the same month. So, um, but yeah, we'll see. What body weight divisions do they have? Uh, so the one I'd be competing in is under 105 kilos. Uh, oh, so they'll so stay relatively small for you. Small yeah. in parentheses, but... For you. Yeah, I think I'll walk around at about 110 and then drop down to 105 for the actual competition. So, okay. so that's the plan. So I appreciate I'm talking in kilos. I know you guys talk in pounds with weight, don't you? Probably just talking random numbers. <laughs> I always am just multiplying and dividing by 2.2 constantly in yeah. conversations like this, yeah. Same. I was just trying to do the maths quickly in my head there, but I suppose 100 is a bit easier than uh, a random number. Did I? No, I have two questions. First, did I hear correctly? You said you were 196 kilo at your... 185. 185. That is massive. Yeah. I'm going to do some quick math here. Keep talking. I'm literally just doing it for you. 480. 407 pounds. 407. I was way off. Yeah, that's massive. How tall are you? Uh, 511. 5'11". He's a thick boy. Yeah, I was very, I was as wide as I was tall. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, it was, um, but that was just the pursuit of excellence in that sport. Like, I was competing at a national and somewhat international level, traveling around Europe, competing. And to be successful in that sport, you've you've got to be close to that weight. Um, I took it to an extreme. I went too heavy, but hindsight is a wonderful thing. I shouldn't, mm-hmm. I was probably would have been more effective 20 kilos lighter but you don't know what you don't know until you look back in later life and think, actually, if I'd have done it now, I'd have done it differently. But, but yeah, it's yeah. heavy. Well, just for perspective, um, what was the, after all of this, which we haven't gotten to yet, so I'm sure the listeners are curious, but after the finish of this journey, what did you end up weighing 
Out of curiosity? Um, 98. 98. So, so yeah, just like 215, 215. Yeah, very good. Yeah, so you went from 409 at your highest to 215 at your yep. lowest after what you've done, which is just wild to me. I, I can't imagine the body. Does the body ever feel out of sorts with that sort of composition change? Because homeostasis um, for you looked a lot different previously. Yeah, I think I, I don't. I don't think I've actually found a homeostasis. I think because my body weight's changed so much over the years. I mean, the the weight loss when I retired from strongman took three years. Like there's the usual like peaks and troughs. You have a good couple of months where you'll drop twenty kilos, and then it'll be slow again, and then you'll drop again. And so it was quite a gradual and steady process. So every body weight I've ended up settling at for a few months, I've just kind of got used to it and feels normal. Um, but this is a weird body weight for me. I feel small. I feel tiny. And I feel weak. Um, and when you've spent a lifetime trying to be strong, um, it's a really weird, really weird place to be in. Um, so I know I'm a better runner for it, but I just, yeah, it's just constant head game that I'm playing with it at the minute. I suppose it's all relative, right? You have a lot of runners who would look at a, a man who's 215 pounds and say, oh, if I could just be that strong one day. But you come from a, a different type of strength, so it's all relative. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, a few runners have kind of commented on my top-end strength and how they wish that they could lift what I could lift or can lift now. And like, like I said to them, like it is all relative. If you'd have sacrificed the years that I spent lifting, you wouldn't be the runner that you are now. Um, mm -hmm. So it's this juxtaposition between the two, isn't it? And I think the best runners have a balance between the two. Um, those that have only ever run and never done any resistance training are probably worse for that. And those that have done loads of resistance training and never really run until later in life are probably worse for that. So I think if you can mesh the two together, you've got a really effective athlete um, in the running sphere. But um, like I said, I mean, I came to running at, well, endurance running at the age of 33. So I'm a late bloomer, late starter. Mm -hmm. So before we move on to not talking about weight, maybe we'll never <laughs> get there in, in this episode. Maybe that's what this episode is. But prior to your strongman start, prior to getting up to your 407, what, I mean, you, you talk about you haven't hit homeostasis. What were you naturally more like, or did you start body changing so early that you never really found out what your walk around weight is yeah so so my journey is that i was basically overweight as a teenager i put on yeah. a chunk of weight not good weight just body fat went to university started playing rugby to a decent level lost a load of that weight and got down to kind of around a 105 110 kilograms um Played rugby for, for several years and then I ended up breaking my neck when the scrum collapsed, which sounds a lot worse than it is. It's basically two hairline but stable fractures in my neck, um, which meant that I had to stop playing rugby for a year. Um, then I did went. You say it, did you say it sounds more serious than it is? Yeah, when you say you broke your neck, people think paralysis and so on and so forth. But it, I it would say not competing for a year would be a fairly serious. <laughs> injury in my eyes yeah i think i think the nature of rugby you're probably a little bit blind to the severity of injuries because it's a contact sport it's an impact sport and obviously like you guys have got football over there and the nature of injuries can be extrapolated so big because of the size of the men running at each other and the injuries that occur so to me when i say that to another rugby player they just nod but when i say it to someone that's not played that sport they're a bit blown away by it but 
You said a hairline, but stable fractures. Yeah, so essentially the scrum, I don't know how much you know about rugby, but two packs come together. The scrum collapsed. My head went over, my body went over my neck, um, felt two clunks in my neck. And, and then, yeah, later found out that they were hairline, but stable fractures. So it wasn't any risk to paralysis or anything like that. It could have been a hell of a lot worse. But um, A year was, later, you found it? No, the, that week I found it, but they oh, told I me. Oh, I thought that, you said a year later. No, so they said that after it, I had to basically not play the position I was playing for a year, and um, my skill set isn't suited to other positions on the field, shall we say. So um, that that's why I fell into strongman uh, whilst I was doing my rehab, because I couldn't run or couldn't train. So I then went from 110 to 140, won my first British Drug Free title. And then that progression then went from there. Then two, three years later, I was 185 kilos, had to retire from that uh, due to a knee issue. And then two to three years back down to anything from recently. I've been 110 to 98, knocking around that for the last six months. And I assume that um, we'll rip the Band-Aid off here shortly, but um, I assume that training for what you just did is what led to that sort of body change um, pre-event to get ready for what you were about to do. I actually put weight on for the challenge. Um, there was smart, actually. Yeah. So Taryn, my coach, basically, I, I was of the uh, objective opinion that the lighter I am, the less injury, the less incidence of injury there will be, the less stress. Obviously, we're putting a hell of a lot of stress through the body, running forty-eight marathons. So in my head, I was like, "Well, the lighter I am, the the less chance of something going wrong." But he was the opposite. He was like, oh, "Actually, we want to build up." decent muscle mass we, we know we're going to have muscle atrophy we know you're going to struggle to eat we know you're going to lose body weight so let's not turn a fit being let's not lose weight and feel weak and then feel even weaker um because what will happen is obviously the body will start to break down so so yeah i, I started my training for the 48 at around 105 and i've run my first marathon at 110 um so i actually put on a little bit of body weight and then finished Seven weeks later, 12 kilograms lighter and 98 kilos. So, so yeah, the actual weight loss was essentially just preparing because I wanted to do more endurance-based stuff. I wanted to train for an Ironman. Um, obviously, COVID arrived and decided that that wasn't going to happen last year. And then that led to, to – because there wasn't a stupid event that I could pay to be a part of, I made my own. <laughs> well, I guess just uh, since you've hinted at it, um, because the listener may not know – John ran 48 marathons in 48 consecutive days in 48 different co- counties, 48 counties. So what what I want to know about this, like just, you know, you came up to me, John, I never do this. And I was in my like Instagram search tab and you came up as like a suggested post of, you know, the list. And I saw this ginger dude in a running singlet. And I was like, I can get on board with this ginger guy in a running singlet. So I clicked on it. And then I was like, what the hell is this guy doing? And that's how I initially was made aware of what you were up to. Um, so that's how this conversation even began, be, began to be. But I, I guess, Bracken, I'm sure you're wondering the exact same thing. Is like, why? <laughs> like, why the, the, the curiosity to do the endurance sports when you're a strong man? Why the initiative in this whole thing like why i guess yeah and i'm actually like i i followed many people who have done things you know you the iron cowboy with his 50 try our iron man in 50 days and you've seen people who do that seven marathons and seven continents and seven days and the why for those things makes sense to me 
because I am an endurance athlete and I understand that crazy appeal to something insane. But what I don't understand is going from strongman to endurance. That's the leap I'm even more curious about because our sports are non-compatible. We generally are not the same social circle. We're not the same mindset. We're not the same body type. We are very much in two different lanes that really don't intersect. Sometimes you'll see a runner decide to, to bulk up, but you almost never see a strong man who says, I'd love to run more in my life. <laughs> Agreed. And I would have definitely been in that camp a few years ago. And it's mm-hmm. interesting you mentioned that, actually, because I've actually had quite a lot of negativity from the running community about what I did and what I'm trying to do. Of course. Um, They're snobbish. Yeah, and, and, and I discussed this at length before, but I think a lot of us define ourselves by our sport. So I am a runner or I am a strongman. And I think that we then use that as a reason why we're not good at other things. Mm-hmm. Not, notwithstanding the fact that you ju- you're not good at it because you just don't do it. You're not good at it. You're not bad at lifting weights because you're a runner. You just don't lift weights. So, of course, you're not going to be good at it. Um, and so I think there is quite an element of snobbishness towards a strongman coming into the endurance sphere because it mm-hmm. kind of – well, if I can run a marathon at my body weight with lifting what I lift, then what's their excuse for not being stronger? And But it was never about comparison. It's never about me wading in and going, aren't I great and strong and now I can run? It was all about... So if we go back a step, so I'm a strength and conditioning coach, um, a gym owner, um, a fitness educator. So for me, I work with a huge range of people from um, stay-at-home mums through to aspiring elite athletes and I've always tried to pervade this concept that you can be anything you want to be if you're prepared to put the work in now granted genetics play a role and there's a, that's another discussion for another day but hard work will always trump most things in life and as long as that's actually what you want to achieve so part of this challenge is built around this idea and concept that let's not create glass ceilings for ourselves. when I was a strong man five reps was cardio um <laughs> it genuinely was like, I'd see it on the program and think oh for God's sake, like, well, can't I just do three? That's easier. But now I can say that I've run 48 marathons. And if I can do it, why can't you? So whether you're coming back from an injury, whether you used to run and haven't for years, whether you used to play a combat sport and now you want to get into something completely different, it's never too late to start. It's never too late to change. It's never too late to to just do something that you want to do. Um, So that was part of the motivation in terms of showing that, you, you don't have to live in the box that you've categorized yourself in or what other people have put you in. So that was where I kind of ended up going down the endurance thing. So essentially I did a 24 hour world record on the ski erg to raise money for a terminally ill child. And then I did a hundred thousand meter world record on the ski erg a few months later, just to try and raise money for a suicide awareness campaign. Sorry to interrupt you, but it's fascinating to me that in the past like six weeks, I've stumbled upon this, that former strongmen make fantastic skier competitors. Yeah, power, power, power to weight ratio. Your wattage is insane. Purely, if you're weight, you're way more great. That's fantastic power. It's the one thing where you're not fighting gravity. Cardio wise. Yeah, you've got more. Like, if you look at a normal person trying to match my power output on a skier, they're probably going 30 to 35 strokes a minute to my 20 to 25. So mm-hmm. I'm more, I'm more efficient. It's like an efficient runner versus heel striker, for example. Like uh, my ability to be efficient in a powerful short range of movement in a closed chain movement is far better than the most because we work in those closed chains. Yeah. 
You don't fight gravity. It works with you for that. Yeah, exa- exactly that. We can use our entire posterior chain. Before you move on, how did those go? I mean, those are things that we could dive into for an entire podcast, and they're just part of your... Yeah, the, by the way. There's, there's, there's quite... Yeah, it's one of those like whistle-stop tours, but you could dedicate... And there's been podcasts dedicated to it already, but essentially the... The scare was a last-minute thing. There was a terminal child. He needed £250,000 to be able to get to Hong Kong to get life-saving treatment, and time was running out. So I thought, what's the most stupid thing that I can do that could possibly generate money that would help? Um, and someone just said, oh, why don't you do 24 hours on a skier? Gives her a world record in that. Googled it. Turned- Had you been Ergin? No, I've, 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 got one in, I've got some in my gyms, but I tend to stay away from them because I was back then. Cardio was a foreign. It's- okay. So you didn't prep. No, 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 no. Okay. That, which is true for most of my endurance things up until the forty eight. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so I gave myself. I think it was ten days. Announced it, and there was a world record. So I was like, right, let's just have a go. Figured out a pacing strategy, and off we went. Twenty four hours later, broke the world record. We generated, I think it was eight thousand pounds, which massively contributed to then getting the treatment total that he needed. Um, and that was what sparked my curiosity. Um, after doing that, I was thinking, well, that didn't break me. And I had no prep. I had no prior experience of doing anything longer than 60 seconds in a strongman competition. And I just managed to do 24 hours of consistent cardio. Did you break the world record? In, uh, by the way, did you break? Yeah, broke broke, broke the world record. Okay. Um, and it then got broken by an American strongman um, not long after. And then got broken back by another Brit. So I think the British are holding that world record at the minute. But you didn't run into like a rhabdo situation or anything where your body betrayed you? No, genuinely, that has been curious to me for a while as to when, almost like, when is that going to arrive? Because I've taken myself to some pretty end ranges of fatigue. Mm-hmm. And other than feeling tired and on the 48, I actually passed out at one point. Um, I've not had any real health implications like that. But on the flip side, I've been competing in sports since I was 11. So it's not like I've just gone, oh, let's try and be an athlete. Like there, there is actually, as much as I joke about lack of prep, I've I've been training all my life. So I think that stands me in good stead to do some of the stupid stuff that I've done um, and not come away with it with any long-term injuries or health implications. But but yeah, the 24 hours was brutal. It was, But it was a mental game as much as physical. I've still got nerve damage in my little fingers. I can't feel my little fingers still um, nearly two years on. But that piqued my curiosity. I was like, if that didn't break me, what what else can I do? And then hence the 100,000 metres, um, because long story short, a friend had tried to commit suicide and hadn't felt like he could talk to anyone about it. And then I spoke to him about a free helpline over here called Calm. He hadn't even heard about it. So it, the next day was World Suicide Prevention Day. So I decided to try and raise awareness of this helpline and doing what I knew how, which was get back on the ski erg. So Broke the 100,000 meter world record, which was a seven and a half hour effort. Um, so we've kind of gone from one extreme to a shorter sustained. I almost define it as like an Ironman to a half Ironman, really. Um, although the ratios are slightly different. But um, And then, yeah, it's like, well, okay, I've, I've done the standing in one place and skiing to death. What else can I do? And then you get into the realms of, well, the next level of endurance is either continuing on static machines, on rowers, on bikes and stuff like that, or we we try and get mobile and and someone said oh why won't you try a triathlon and then it was right right let's get on google what's the world's hardest triathlon and it was an ironman i was like right let's do an ironman and then along the way as i say covid arrived so then i ended up doing the 4448 
um, around the time that my Ironman should have happened just to see what that felt like. And that was surprisingly comfortable. That's the four miles every four hours for 48 hours. Yeah, that's the one. Um, and I was, and that was comfortable? About, yeah, don't, I mean, don't get me wrong. It was difficult. I was 140 kilos in body weight, but looking back, all of my challenges, <laughs> my challenges have had an escalating level of suffering. And I remember at the time thinking, this is this is horrendous. I hate this. I'm, why, four miles is a ridiculous long distance to run. And then I remembered on the 48, when I was like 20 miles into a 26 mile run on day 30, like, Huh. I used to laugh when I used to hate it when I had to do four miles and today I'm doing 26. So yeah, looking back hindsight, it, I, it was easy compared to the 48, but at the time it was, it was pretty, um, pretty difficult. And, um, and yeah, and then that's obviously then led us to, to where we are, but essentially the whole point of the four, uh, the 48, 48, 48 was so over here, as I'm sure you probably got over there is child food poverty is a huge issue. Um, Last year with COVID, people losing jobs, families losing income, 980,000 children needed a food bank to be able to to eat, which is a huge proportion of our childhood population over here. Is that just, sorry, is that just where you live you're talking? In, in, in England. England. So 980,000 children in England. And so we set up an initiative last year called uh, Miles for Meals which was essentially what it says on the tin. We run miles, you sponsor us, um, and that money pays for meals for children. Uh, We raised £10,000, fed, I think it was um, 4,000 children at Christmas, um, and was a massive success. So from that, we thought, well, how can we do more? Let's not just be a one and done. Let's do more with this, and let's set it up as a charity. So managed to find a couple of trustees to come along with me. We set it up as a charity, and... We set the charity with two aims. One, to raise awareness about food poverty in our country. And two is to raise funding and raise essentially financial support to our nation's food banks and to children that that need our support. Um, And then I had a meeting with the trustees and we're talking about how we can raise awareness. Can we take miles for meals on a roadshow? Can we take it around the country? And we, we couldn't really find anything that really stuck. And then I went to a barbecue with some of my rugby friends, had a few too many beers, and we essentially came up with the idea, revisited an idea that I'd had a while ago, which was a marathon a day in all of the counties in England. So for us, terminology, you call them states, we call them counties. Obviously, we're much smaller than you, so we've got much less of a geographical issue in terms of getting around all of our counties. Um, And yeah, so then that led us to right, well, let's take it on a roadshow. Let's do something that's never been done in this country. Um, and let's try and get ambassadors on board, people that can help us run, help us find routes, help us get other people to come and run with me. And then it's almost planting seeds around the country. So then next year we can go back to those ambassadors and say, well, during when you ran with John last year, why don't you run this year with your own social circle, your own group and try and raise money, try and raise awareness. And from there we can pollinate this network of people that will support the Miles for Meals initiative, raise money, raise awareness and, and support our cause. So that was why. Um, and then, yeah, it was, Brett, uh, I know Brett. So we, uh, you're just throwing meat to the wolves over here, and you don't even know it. I can tell Bracken is chomping at the bit as well. Um, first of all, to confirm, the 48, the number 48. I don't know this. I'm a close-minded American. Apparently, we only know ourselves. Um, are there 48 counties? Yeah. So don't worry. Most of the most the most common question I get is why not 50? 
Um, yeah, there are only, thankfully, only 48 counties mm -hmm. in England. Okay. Um, okay. So, yeah, there was a debate. Do we do we round it up to 50? Do we do one in Scotland and Wales? But then it was like, if we're going to do that, well, we need to go over to Ireland to do the whole of Great Britain. If we're going to do that, let's do Europe and the world. And where does it ever stop? So we kept on task. We kept on point, And we stuck to the mission brief of a marathon a day in every county, which was, yeah, 48 in 48 days, um, okay. which has never been done before. There's been people in this country that have run more consecutive marathons. There's a gentleman that ran 101 consecutive marathons in his hometown uh, on 101 days, uh, but no one's done it the way I did it geographically around around the count around the country. Okay, Bracken. Does anybody? I don't know if you know. But, so basically, we have 48 contiguous states here in the U.S. and then two that are separate: Hawaii and Alaska. Has anybody done the 48 in 48 states? I have to imagine, right? No, I just can't think of anybody noteworthy. Dean Canazes, oh, okay. I believe his name is. Okay. Yeah, he's done 50. He did, he did that, and then they've done the Ironman in every state. Asinine. Which got a bit hazy. There was like a hurricane in the middle of it, and he did. He elliptical. He had some injuries, running, yeah. so elliptical. But anyways, it doesn't. The work was done. <laughs> well, uh, one, have you always been charitable previous to this, and then two. I can't de decide if this is like a, I am in love for some reason with this endurance aspect. So while I'm doing it, let's raise awareness and help some people. Or is it like the chicken before the egg scenario or like, let's help some people. And this is the best way I can come up with to do that. Do you understand what I'm asking? Yeah, absolutely. And I think anyone that does these challenges that said it's all just for the charity is lying. And anyone that does it then says it's all for their own, ego and can they do it and questioning themselves or trying to discover themselves is probably also lying as well because there's also external gratification and external goals for reasons why you want to do it and for me the idea of wanting to test myself and take myself to somewhere I've never been before was significant the idea of trying to prove to the people that follow me or maybe might follow me or might take lessons from my journey that anything's possible and don't put yourself in a box don't build ceilings on the foundations of other people's opinions the amount of people friends family the running community the triathlon community that were like you are not going to do this and i was like watch me i guarantee you i'll do it to try and show like so many of us wouldn't have even have tried because of the amount of people that said you won't um i could have easily put a glass ceiling on myself and said no based on what other people's opinion of my ability was um so that was one side of it and the other side is Another part of the story is when I was um, 11 or 12, my, my dad fell off a roof, broke his back, was paralyzed. And my mum had to become his full-time carer and we lived in childhood poverty. So it's, um, it's a charity that's very close to my heart because I grew up in a position of pain, in a position where we had no money, we relied on the government, we relied on food banks. So it was almost the perfect storm. It was a chance to, to show the messages that I've tried to promote and live by for the last 10, 15 years as a coach. It was a chance to test myself. How tough am I? How mentally resilient am I? Can I suffer as much as I think I can? And a chance to support a cause that means a hell of a lot to me. And everyone that I've spoken to that does these elite levels of idiocy, is, I think is the only way we can describe it, is that for me, I'm not looking to find myself. I, I, I know myself. I've got a pretty good handle of who I am, what I am, and why I am the way I am. I'm looking at almost trying to reaffirm my belief system in life, people, 
mental resilience, physical fortitude, and, and so on and so forth. So it is a perfect storm of all of those things. And I think there's a lot of people that like to try and make out. It's this whole, oh, I'm just trying to show you about how hard and tough and mental resilient you've got to be. And there's other people that are like, no, I'm just sunshine and rainbows and it's all about the charity but i think neither of one of those things is enough to get you to suffer that much to see it through to the end and i'll be quite honest and say it's a mixture of of both i like that that's that's a very defensible position (laughs) (laughs) yeah and it was the same as this whole like i never considered quitting a lot of that's a common question oh did you ever consider quitting every damn day like again there's this whole like mindset and this shift in the fitness industry especially where it's like never doubt yourself never think of quitting as soon as you think of quitting you'll quit and to thinking of quitting and understanding how hard something is isn't a bad thing if you then interpret that data and use that data how you need to to then continue to move forward trying to just drown out a thought of this is really hard i need to question can i continue is actually probably the quickest way to actually fail at it because you don't adapt, you don't change, you don't see what's happening in front of you and then make a plan that actually fits the circumstance that you found yourself in. Um, So again, it's another message that I've tried to put across on the podcast that I've done on the subject is like, it's okay to consider quitting. It's okay to doubt yourself, but just use that data in the way that you need to, not let it decide your next action negatively. Mm Mm-hmm. Bracken, I interrupted you when I started my question, so I'm sure you've got one. No, 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 not at all. I think that was worth seeing out because that that answer that came fo- following that is something people need to hear. I agree with that. I think it. I, I was I was going to ask about a, a relationship of of your why you chose the charity you chose, but obviously your childhood spoke to that. But that that kind of intrigues me that. I mean, power, I, I have never been a strongman competitor, but I have several good friends who are pretty big into that world. And watching them from an outsider, it seems like it's a 50-50 split between incredibly dedicated training and just being the most powerful human imaginable and an eating competition. <laughs> and and, and my, I guess my my overly armchair psychologist uh, question is how much of that stemmed from your childhood poverty, the ability to be the most powerful in control person in any room and also the ability to eat for a living? I think it just comes down to accountability and discipline. Like yeah. when, when I was a child, we didn't have a lot. We had to do, we had to maximize the absolute most out of what we did have. We had hardly any money. We had hardly any food. We had four miles to feed a disabled father to look after the list goes on the challenges were immense and we got through it by making the most out of what we had and controlling the controllables and I I use that phrase a lot and it's become a bit of a cliche now of the whole stoic mindset and control what you can and and I don't it frustrates me that stoicism is almost becoming a cliche of itself but again that's probably another conversation for another day but um so I guess for me my understanding of controlling the controllables my understanding of maximizing the absolute most you can out of every given situation probably then led me to my mindset around training around business around life in general um and I've said before like for me I'd rather be a I tried and failed than never tried at all and I think that comes from that childhood upbringing because 
I remember thinking I'd love to have the opportunities to try all these things and do all these things and go to all these places, but I just don't have the financial resources because my parents couldn't afford it. So now I'm very much still 25 years on or more than 25 years on. I'm getting old. Um, living this this almost like making up for the those lost years in my childhood. So I think it almost does kind of stem back to those days of difficulty and trouble when I was younger, um, but not as probably not as acutely aware of that as I probably should be. I I agree with that statement that stoicism is becoming a bit cliche. It's almost hipster to be a stoic now. And yet at the same time, like the, one of the best things you could do to set a, an athlete on the correct path or a businessman would be to be like a, a moderate stoic. Like that's a good jumping off point to understand that all things aside, I will control what's in my path. And I'm not going to make a big deal about anything else. That that mindset had to have served you well in in the strongman world, and it's imperative in the endurance world to not let those frivolous little uncontrollables unravel you. Yeah, I've, I've said so. I mentor other gym owners, and I've said to them many times: emotion is a poor decision making tool. So many of us make decisions based on emotion rather than fact. And then we or we allow facts to be distorted by our emotion. Um, and at the end of the day, other people's words, um, your bank balance, your general day to day happiness, it's all just data. How we choose to process that data is up to us. And that will then normally generate the result positively or negatively. And it was the same with the 48. There was a lot of data coming in, a lot of negative data, a lot of pain, a lot of struggle, a lot of suffering, a lot of, I don't want to do this. But how you position that data, how you interpret it, and how you take away the emotion to move forward, I think is really important. And um, yeah, I think if I see one more photo of the Daily Stoic on an Instagram story, I'm probably going to just start blocking people. (laughs) And that's unfortunate because like I subscribe to the Daily Stoic. Yeah, same, same. For years, my brother turned me on to it probably four years ago or three years ago, and it's it's fantastic, and yet it's so overused that you have to underuse it for a while. But so so those those frivolous things is what I'm curious about because we've Kirk and I have both been in endurance competitions and and nothing nearly as long as what you did. But in my belief, getting back to again that eating for a living type thing. An ultra event is equal parts mind game, fitness, and an eating competition. And what you did was not racing a marathon. It was an ultra competition. It turns into very much, as you saw with your body weight, which you knew going in, an eating competition in between events, an almost impossible one to win. So that's obviously the big one. But what were those other little extraneous things that popped up that were the potential derailers that you were able to avoid? The 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 first one and probably most obvious one was actually COVID. The um the biggest fear of what could derail the whole thing, aside from my mental and physical ability, was catching COVID. Um, so just things like day to day admin with that, like making sure you keep in distance, not getting too close to people when you're tired, and just maintaining your social distance. Which over here, all of our rules are pretty much relaxed now. We've almost gone back to normal life. So that was a really difficult one to try and maintain discipline whilst fatigued, whilst tired, whilst actually someone putting an arm around you and telling you you're all right would probably be quite nice. But knowing that the last thing you need is to then find out that you've contracted COVID or somebody that gave you a hook four days earlier. So that was not a frivolous thing, but a thing that was always on the periphery that I always had to control and make sure that I was doing my admin around it. But I guess the other stuff was the, the thing is like your definition of pain 
changes whilst you do these things, as I'm sure if you're doing a 100 miler or an ultra event or anything like that, like a blister that would stop a normal 10K runner from continuing wouldn't even register on the, I'll probably need to deal with that scale when you're in that level of discomfort. So a lot of it, so I've, I've I trained quite a few ex-military personnel. I train a couple of ex-special forces um, guys as well. And their advice to me around the challenge was just keep on top of your personal admin. So for me, the frivolous things to control were foot care, making sure my feet were strapped, um, Vaseline in the right areas. My shoes were didn't have anywhere that was rubbing. And if there was anything that started to create a hot spot, stop, change my, tra- change my trainers, change my socks, whatever it might need to be. Um, just keep it on top of those things because those are the little things that can start to it's almost like when you pull a thread on a jumper, isn't it? And if you just keep pulling, keep pulling, pulling, eventually you can have a big old hole in that jumper. So it was that whole concept of take care of all those little things because those little things over 48 days will become big things if you let them be. Um, so that was the main thing for me to control. It was like I had a mental checklist when I woke up, a mental checklist whilst I was running, and then one when I finished. It was almost like a a once over of the body, where's the problem sites, what do I need to prioritise my time with recovery, Um, what needs bandaging, icing, Um, not looking out for the amount of horrendous skin that you've lost on on a toe or whatever it might be, Um, and keeping on top of the little things because I say, again, I say to a lot of my clients that it's the little bits that add up over time. We are the average of what we do, and 48 days is a long time for that average to decline or to improve. Um, So for me, it was keeping on top of those little day-to-day things because knowing that if day one I ignored it, by day 25 it was going to be a significant issue that I couldn't just ignore and run through. Well, I think Bracken and I, so we we talk training specifics and we talk – metrics and we talk how to be the best you can be and oftentimes in that conversation we include well if you're a heavier athlete let's say you know there's some asterisks by what we preach and maybe that is high volume but low run volume meaning you're substituting time on feet with an elliptical or a rower or an erg or something like that to get the volume you need while still staying healthy and being able to perform and then you just go ahead and go against all that You just go run for 48 days straight as an athlete who bears gravity more than any traditional distance runner. And so all the nuances you're talking about is like my largest curiosity, which is like staying injury free. I'm a 175 pound athlete and I'm able to run three or four days a week right now at high level. And I would think of the stress fractures, the tendonitis, the potential nutrient deficiencies I would feel at the end of that. And then to add another 50 pounds or 20 kilos, let's say, of body weight, I can't even fathom. So that naturally leads me to the question of like, how the hell did you possibly come out of this on your own two feet? I can't comprehend it. Yeah, I think uh, you're doing 183 miles a week. 183 a week. Yeah. 183.4 miles a week which is about 150 more miles per week than I would prescribe (laughs) for a 100-plus kilogram athlete. Yeah, I think we probably need to address that term I used earlier, elite idiocy. Um, (laughs) Yeah, uh, I guess the thing is, though, when you take quitting off the table, then these things aren't injuries. They're just things you need to manage. So... 
I spoke to a few people that had done similar distance stuff. Taryn's coach guys, that have, so my coach uh, Taryn had, had coached other guys that had done similar stuff, or not to the same level, but ultra distance things. And they all said the same. You can get through the first seven to 10 days, your body will start to adapt and will start to accommodate what you're trying to make it do. And that, to a large extent, was what was happening. So the first seven days were hell on earth. I had what felt like I saw my physio and they're saying that it looks like my Achilles is about to rupture. I've got a hole in my quad. My hamstring's not great. I had patella tendonitis in both knees. A hole in your quad? Yeah, there was a two centimeter gap that you could feel in my quad. And they were like, not sure that's healthy, but what can you do? Um, and, and that was the thing. Like, if you... If, if you had that in a race, you get to decide, do I continue or do I stop? But for me, I decided going into this that unless I physically could not take a step, I was going to continue. And you kind of have to disregard your future health and safety in doing that because you can't you can't do these things and expect to come out the other side injury-free, healthy, and, and walking on two feet. And I was prepared to accept whatever injury may come, whether it was debilitating, long-term surgery requirement, wh- whatever it might have been. For me, it was like, unless I physically cannot move, I will continue on whatever injury I've got. Whether that was the case, whether I just didn't find an injury that was bad enough to make me stop, I don't know, but we'll we'll never know because I didn't get to that point. But there were days where I had to use my walking poles as crutches. I was doing a kilometre in 30 minutes because I couldn't walk. I was literally hobbling along and at one point uh, considered whether it was actually easier to crawl rather than run or walk. Um, but when you take failure or stopping off the table and think, well, this isn't, I can't stop. I've just got to figure out how to navigate this issue then you manage to navigate the issue. And like I say, I got to day 10 and everything just kind of stopped hurting. And then I got to day and then, but then we moved away from body pain. So we had ankles, knees, hamstrings, quads, glutes, that all went away. And then the blisters arrived and then it was blisters on blisters on blisters and it was foot admin. And it was just like, my feet looked like they'd just been kept in swamp water for days took my sock off on day, I think it was day 20, and half of my toe came off, almost like the toe cap came off with it. Um, Luckily, I was on a military base the next day, and they gave me some um, dressings that helped protect it from getting infected because you could see the nerve endings on the end of my toe, and it wasn't a good place to be. But then, like I say, the body, by about day 23, 24, I was like, I am in good shape. Everything was feeling good. I was running decent times. I was able to run the whole marathon instead of hobbling parts of it and having to walk little bits. And I was able to run up hills, run down hills, and I was I was flying. And then I think it was around day 26. I think I just pushed too hard for too long. And about two hours after finishing the race, I collapsed. Um, just literally had, had a shower, had food, stood in the kitchen talking to a couple of friends, and I just fainted. Um spoke to my GP here and he said, well, there's such a thing as extreme exhaustion. And as much as you don't want to admit it, you probably push yourself to that extreme limit. Um, and that almost reset the body back to day one. Because then the next day I had a concussion to deal with. Plus my ankle started hurting, my knee started hurting, my hip started hurting again. And we had to almost go through that whole cycle all over again. Um, so by day 40... The world was good. Everything had largely stopped hurting, or I just got used to living in a continual perpetual state of pain. I'm not sure which. I would argue a continual uh, perpetual state of like probably delirium, but tomato, tomato at this point. The, the thing is, so 
Myself and Tara, my coach, we both said that if we could get to day 34, the challenge was done. So in my head, when I got to day 34, I was finished. I just had to navigate the last two weeks because there was, I'd almost put too much time and effort and energy in to get to that point. And to be able to get through the final two weeks, I could do that regardless of whatever came my way. So by that point, it was like acceptance that we've, we're going to see this through and it's going to get done. It's now just how much injury prevention can we manage to get out the other end without snapping anything or doing myself a mischief by pushing too hard unnecessarily. Um, and yeah, I remember quite vividly the last week of the challenge, every time I turned up to a new county, everyone was saying, it's like, oh, you're not as bad as I thought you would. Like you're moving pretty well. You're running pretty well. You, you don't look like you've disabled yourself. Um, and I guess because I wasn't chasing an ego time, I wasn't chasing PB times on the run. I was still running and I was still plodding along, but the ego got left at the door. And I saw my physio yesterday a week on and he confirmed that there's no lasting damage to, to anything. I've got some minor swelling and soreness and residual um, inflammation in my tibants in both legs and both of my calves. Um, but other than that, we're all good. Um and if you'd have told me that at the start of day five, when they gave me this whole long list of things that were wrong with me, I'd have laughed at you and been like, no, I'm definitely going to rupture an Achilles. This is going to go all kinds of wrong. I'm going to be in a wheelchair for nine months. Um, but yes, somehow the body adapted, it got on board and we overcame it. And I say we like it's a third person, but it was a team effort in terms of keeping me moving. But um, I think, as I say, going back to my previous comment, once you take quitting off the table, then it's not is this going to stop me? It's how can I navigate it to, to get through another day? I think that's, that's an advantage that oftentimes we see from the non-runner becoming a runner. As they bring a different way of thinking about races than we do. Because we, we, we're thinking about performance first. And even when we say we're not caring about performance, our decision-making process is wired to care about performance. And that makes it very easy to give up on tasks like that as soon as your performance goal is out the window. And that's I always find that powerful when a non-runner is better mentally at doing something that I would tell myself I'm supposed to be better at. So this this is where me being average helps. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you, as a lifelong runner or as a runner or someone that identifies as a runner, you'll know what a good... 5k 10k half marathon marathon is you've got things to compare it to ask me what time i want to finish a half ironman in and the answer is i just want to finish it mm-hmm. I, i'm not trying to set the world on fire because i'm not going i'm i'm self-aware enough to know there's a size i am the way i am how late i've come into this and the injuries i've got from other sports it's pointless me comparing myself to other people other times and other results and i, I say routinely comparison is a thief of joy so it's ironic because that's not the life I lived in Strongman because I lived comparing my lifts to other lifts to other lifters. Like if I could pull 380, but he could pull 400, well, now I need to pull 400. What's it going to take to get that extra weight on the bar? So I, I completely understand that attitude because I had that attitude when I was competing in a sport that I was very good at. Um, but the joy of being average in this world is I don't care. Like I want to improve. <laughs> I want to increase my time, my Strava times. If, are there for me to look at my development. They're not me to compare my times to your times because I'm never going to match yours. 
for me, it's just can I run a 5K faster th- this time than I could last year? Can I do 10K, half half marathon, full marathon? Could I go out and run an ultra tomorrow based on my current level of fitness? And if the answer is yes, then I'm improving. It's not about comparison. And I think that's where a lot of runners coming into running later in life probably come from that advantage because we're not expecting to be world leaders or competitive or front of the pack runners. We're We're doing it more for the challenge rather than the comparison we, we call that uh we call that staying in your own lane because when you start to veer off in other people's lanes it can be a little discouraging so you stay in your own lane you mind your own business and you do what is important to you um which is good yeah, for people there. I, I i've used that i've used that analogy in strongman before like if i if i deadlifted 400 kilograms uh, before a competition and then saw one of my competitors deadlift 420 kilograms who i was going to compete against in two weeks time me seeing that and worrying about that and getting stressed about that doesn't make me stronger. It's not going to make me pull more weight knowing that he can outlift me. But what will matter is my mental preparation to do the absolute best I can on the day, hoping that that's enough to eke out a little bit more weight on the bar, or maybe he hopes that he makes a mistake. Um, and I think that's where a lot of people waste a lot of time, effort and energy. And if we go back to the whole stoic attitude and control the controllables and mm-hmm. what someone else runs is not your business. What someone else's opinion of you isn't your business. And as much as it's easy to say that, it's harder to practice that. But if we just focus on our own personal development in all parts of our life, we'd probably all be much further ahead than constantly comparing ourselves to other people's times, efforts and energies and bank balance. Um, and I think that's something that has definitely resonated and reminded me strongly with entering this endurance world. And again, like, like I say, I'm not here to try and break world records. I'm just here to to improve, to challenge myself and to hopefully do a little bit of good for the community around me in the process. You, um, Well, I was going to say you did you did time your efforts, though, right? And this may be an irrelevant question. It's so subjective and small. But what day did you run your fastest marathon and what day did you run your slowest? Do you know those statistics? Yeah, I'm still a numbers man. I'm still <laughs> I'm still driven by numbers. <laughs> no, so my my best marathon ever, just to put into context the times that I'll tell you. So my best marathon ever was three hours fifty two. That was where I peaked for it and went as hard as I could. Um, which to many runners is laughable. Like if you're nowhere near sub three hours, you're probably not a runner to some people. But for me, that was a massive achievement breaking the four hour um, time frame as a, as a heavier runner. Um, so to put into context, my fastest marathon um, on the 48 was four and a half hours. And my slowest was six and a half when that was when I was in a, a lot of pain and there was a lot more walk. The ratio was probably 60, 40 from walking to running. Um, but again, like my challenge, my rules. So I, I said from day one, it wasn't a time challenge. It was a distance challenge. Um, and a lot of people try to turn it into a time challenge and try to focus on my times. But <laughs> for me, I, I set myself. So the London marathon, the cutoff is seven and a half hours. So that was the target I gave myself that if I could finish every marathon sub seven and a half hours, then I can say that I completed a marathon on that day. Um, I think once you start getting past that, then you can you are opening yourself up to that question of, well, did you even run it or did you even complete it? Because it took you 12 hours, which you could still argue, yes, I did, because it's a distance, not a time. But yeah, that was my standard that I set for myself. Every day, sub seven and a half hours, and we achieved that by by an hour, even on the slowest day. Did you, um, and then I'll let you, I'll let you go, Bracken, sorry, but when did that four, the fastest one happen? 
Um, it was around the midway point when I was getting a bit too excited and thought I was basically Mo Farah. Um, <laughs> I was, I was, yeah, I just, I just felt effortless and I was just running along, chatting away, heart rate at 120. And I was like, this isn't even zone two. Like, I'm flying. <laughs> um, and then two days later, I collapsed and was unconscious and probably <laughs> pushed a little bit too hard. But hey, we live and learn and hindsight's a wonderful thing. But, um, but yeah, from that day, I then remind it was a timely reminder. Like you're here to do a distance, not a time. So stop. Even if you feel good, it's that whole like start slow, finish slower kind of old adage from ultra marathons, isn't it? Like let's not get carried away just because you feel good. Don't go pushing it because whatever debt you create to your system today, you're going to have to deal with multiplied more times down the line when you've got to do 48 of the things. I think that's important for people. Because time is everything in our world. And it's a fantastic motivator. You can't fake it. Like your time is your time and you can't, you can't fudge that. But at the same time, it's the most distracting factor you could ever have. And it's unfortunate that people tried to drag that into your challenge because it's your challenge and they wanted to apply their, their adherence to time to it, which it clearly wasn't about. But they have to find a way to drag it down to a level that they can discourage you. I, I wrote a blog post about this this week, and it was people judge you by their standards. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's up to you whether you want to buy into that standard or not. Like the majority of people that kept talking about my times or trying to challenge my times or say that I'm not running a proper marathon because I'm over four hours or over mm-hmm. five hours, they're all runners that all judge themselves by their standard of time. Um the normal general population that are casual runners or passive runners were all impressed by the distance, not the time. Um, and that's the thing. People will judge you by their standards and they'll try and hold you to the standard that they hold themselves to. Um, and there is this extreme and the, the joy of social media has given everyone not only the chance to have an opinion, but a chance to tell you their opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, so before there's probably a group of runners sat around the running club having a good moan about, oh, he's not running proper marathons. Whereas now social media has given them an opportunity to send me a direct message to tell me that. You, you had a podcast in the past. You probably experienced that once in a while. We get you. Yeah. We hear from people. Yeah. <laughs> but, and I think that that's the thing. So for me, it was always just stay on point, stay within, stay, t- stick to your mission. Um, I, like I say, I'm fortunate to have a lot of connections in the military. I ran with um, Royal Marines, ex-Special Forces guys throughout the, the 48 days. And hearing them talk in military terms really helped put a lot of into perspective. Talking about staying on mission, staying focused, keep on top of your admin. A lot of those things that civilians probably don't consider, but spending quite a bit of time throughout the seven weeks with military men definitely helps re reaffirm that, don't get dragged into other people's opinions because that's how you then mess up. You start going, trying to go too fast to appease strangers that are never going to donate and never going to get behind what you're doing anyway, um, or just to satisfy their, their standard that you don't even live by. I, I almost feel compelled to apologize for the running community because I feel like Kirk and I both grew up playing every sport and we latched onto running once we weren't good enough at anything else. And, and so we are a part of that community, but our running community is a great community, but it's also made up a large percentage of outcasts and misfits. We are, we are people who naturally running is not the most popular sport to a youth. And so you get people who didn't have a place 
And so they kind of grew up not having something that they got credit for. And so when they see someone come in who's not a runner, in quotes, who's suddenly getting attention or in their eyes asking for it, they have this incredibly visceral response, which is you're not one of us and I can do that faster. So why should you get attention that I never received growing up? And it's a very negative, I don't want to use the word toxic because it's overused, but it's a very negative trait that is really running through the core of the running community, which is I never got attention. You shouldn't get it if I can do it faster. Yeah. And the flip side to that is that the irony is if more people came into their sport and made it more mainstream, then they'd actually get more credit for what they're doing because more people would be able to quantify how good they are <laughs> at that sport. Yeah, I had I had a, a running club that I emailed asking to get on board and they came back saying they won't support it because I'm devaluing the marathon distance. I was like, isn't your primary isn't your primary focus as a running club is to remove barriers for people to participate in running so if this big old rig is running 48 marathons surely that takes away anyone's excuse in the future that says oh i'm not a runner well this guy did it and he did not just one marathon but 48 so surely that's an opportunity for you to get more people into your sport and raise the profile of what it is you're doing but unfortunately and in 48 days, I only had one running club engaged with the whole whole project, um, which is disappointing. But I even had it. So Triathlon Taron so was my coach, and he interviewed me on his podcast. And I got um, messages from the triathlon community saying, I'm an elite age grouper, and I can't even get interviewed on Taron's podcast. And who are you? And you're getting interviewed. And it just goes back to that point again. It's like, mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not saying I'm better than you. I'm not. I'm not trying to say that what I'm doing is I'm not a better triathlete than you. I'm definitely not a better Ironman or half Ironman or whatever it is you define yourself as. I haven't even done a bloody Ironman. But like, if you're not getting the the accolades or the publicity you deserve, then that's that's on you. That's not it's not my fault. Like I'm doing I'm doing what I'm doing, and I'm sorry. But if your story isn't interesting enough to warrant a podcast or an interview, then that's on you. Take that up with Tara, and don't come don't come throw your stones at my door. I uh, I think everybody's jealous of your sweet ginger beard. That's what I think. And when people <laughs> hate on me, I just oh, that's, shove, shove. that's the narrative I give I've, when they start hating. I'm like they're yeah. just jealous of this sweet ginger beard. There could be some of that. I'm just saying, John. Just saying. But look, look, I think I think I think the problem the problem is is that as many people, like, I'm not trying. And I sound, I'm not trying to inspire people. I'm trying to show people that what can be possible. And I think there's a slight differentiation between the two. I'm not walking around thinking I'm a, a walking, talking inspiration. I'm just living the life that I'm living and trying to live the values that I try and put forward to my the guys I work with. But I think, unfortunately, by doing that, it also creates resistance because it holds up mirrors to other people. It, it creates comparison and the comparison is a thief of joy. I've already said it twice tonight already. I'm getting bored of the sound of my own voice with that quote. But unfortunately, it it, it it does create comparison with people. And people don't like that comparison. And they feel that they're not, as you say, they're marginalized. They're not as, they should have as many followers or they should have as many podcast interviews or they should have more sponsors. And I, I mean, I even had um, a supplement company called Awesome Supplements, which is a British company. They they offered to give me all of the carb and electrolyte powders that I'd need. Um, and they actually gave me so many that they're out of stock in their um, in their warehouse for a week. And I even got messages from their customers having a go at me because they had to wait a week for their electrolyte powders because they'd all been sent to me. And you just like, I, I give up. I'm literally trying to raise £40,000 for 
starving kids and you're all just giving me shit. So, yeah, it's just I think the problem is in life, no matter what you do, it will be criticised. And this is, again, a, a recurring theme that I always go back to is you could you could literally run 48 marathons in 48 days in 48 counties, put yourself through an insurmountable amount of pain that you can't even describe to try and raise money to help a victimised and marginalised sector of our community that are literally going to bed hungry and people will still criticise you. So that thing that you wanted to do that you were worried about doing because you were scared about someone's opinion, just do it because you will absolutely <laughs> never please anyone, no matter what no. you do. It's, your mirror comment rings true. Because a lot of these runners looked around their social circle and they said, the only person who gets any attention is the fastest guy I know. He's the only one that a girl will talk to or he's the only one who gets a sponsorship. So if I were faster, I would get that attention. And then they get faster and they see that in this day and age, who gets sponsorships? It's people who the public are interested in, not necessarily the fastest person. And it reflects back on them that no matter how fast I run, I may not have anything that anyone else wants to hear about. And that's difficult for them. But at the end of the day, it reveals that the social construct of our world is that very few people could care if you run a 20, 19, 15, or 12-minute 5K. They care if you give them something to want to be like. And that, like you said, that mirror piece reflects back on no one cares how fast I run. And that's tough for people. Yeah, and... But I guess it comes down to your own yardstick, doesn't it? Like, how do you measure success? How yeah. do you, like, if you measure success by your bank balance, if you weren't enough with £10,000 in your account, you're probably not going to be enough with £50,000 in your account. So I think people try to find gratification in extrinsic um, congratulations and extrinsic opinions of you. And and I think, again, stoicism again, here we go. But <laughs> it, it's it's this whole self-awareness and doing things for your own internal drivers and the reasons that you want to do it and i think covid was i think i say i say take this the right way because i know a lot of people lost their lives and people lost a lot of money but covid was actually a brilliant thing for showing people what their actual motivating drivers are for most parts of their life from their business their career their family their their sport how many people have dropped out of Ironman or triathlon or running because there wasn't an external motivating factor of a shiny medal to put on Facebook at the end of a run. And, mm -hmm. and I think that if anything, the last two or 18 months has shown all of us is what are we internally motivated by and what extrinsically or externally are we motivated by? And external motivation is not a bad thing. I think you need a mixture of the both. I think you need to have internal and external motivation. But I think so many people focus so many of their goals, aspirations, and things that they think will make them happy based on external factors that at the end of the day, you can't even control. Like I could have gone out there and run a sub three hour marathon and it probably wouldn't have impressed anyone as much as mm -hmm. running a five hour marathon, but finishing the job and getting all 48 done. So again, we can, again, like I was saying, emotions are a terrible driver for decision-making. So many of us base our decision-making on emotion, external gratification, and trying to be something in the eyes of strangers that we've never even met. Um, so yeah, I guess that was what helped me get through the 48 was because it wasn't about trying to impress a subsection of people that were never going to be impressed. It was my own internal drivers to achieve what I wanted to achieve and my own external drivers to help a charity that was much needed, that much needed the funds. Um, and I guess that helped me get through it.
people need to hear that they will never be impressed. As soon as you wipe that, like you said, as soon as you remove quitting, you're freer. As soon as you remove pleasing others, you are freer. Yeah, I think we, we all walk around think, thinking too much about people that think about us. Like, it, it, it baffles me. Like, I, I, I remember worrying about or what if i what if i lose a game of rugby or what if what if i don't manage 24 hours and there'll be a personal element of embarrassment if i hadn't managed to do 24 hours on a ski erg but if anyone wanted to criticize that i'd be like well where were you what did you do how did you try and help oscar when he needed help but also it's this idea of like even if i failed or succeeded like no one really cares They'll go, oh, high five, well done, brilliant, wasn't that great? Or they'll be like, oh, you did so well, though, don't worry about it. There's always next time, keep moving forward. And they then go about on their day because you, to them, in their book of life is a page. It's not chapters and chapters and chapters of their book. And I think we also often think that we are far more important in other people's minds than we really are. Um, and as soon as you become more self-aware of that, I think life gets a lot easier. No, that's the that's the truth. We all think we're so important that everybody's going to dwell on what we are or are not doing. When in reality, everybody's stuck in their own world thinking they're so important that they're only stuck thinking and worrying about themselves. You're just a blip on their radar when they see it come up. And whether you fail or succeed, it's not going to change their day. It's not, I mean, in general, right, it's going to change yours and the person you're trying to help or the people you're trying to help. So I think that's super, super valid. I think that's important for people to hear because when you're in high level racing, especially, which Bracken and I um, are, it's very easy to feel judgment and judge eyes on every little thing you do. You know, nobody's sitting at home talking about you for any length of time and it doesn't matter regardless. So that's a good perspective. Did you have to remind yourself of that a good bit out there? Is that just like a personal mantra that you've already lived by? Yeah, it's something I had to remind myself of just because, again, like my social media got a huge, a huge spike in activity. It was getting huge amounts of engagement, comments, inbox messages, both good and bad. Um, so it was just that reminder of like focus on why you're doing it and remember why you're doing it block out and ignore or block or delete those that want to criticize or take swipes at you and just stay on point, stay on your mission and just do what you said you were going to do, which was get through 48 marathons in 48 days. And the thing is, I think it's different for you guys because I'd imagine you've got sponsors and you've got prize money and all the kind of stuff that comes with it. So there is another element of judgment that comes with high level performance or high level competition. But I think if we're just talking about the general day-to-day runner or someone that competes but isn't obviously like at that top echelon, then, um, yeah, I think everyone could probably do with staying in their lane a little bit more and and focusing on what drives them and what makes them happy and what their version of success is. Like every, every new client I work with is how do you define success? And is that actually your definition or is it someone else's that you've decided is your definition? Um, And if you can define what makes you successful, then you can then get about finding that. And I think that's where you'll find far more fulfillment. And that's why I say that I'm not doing these challenges to find myself. I know myself. Um, Yes, we can always learn more about ourselves and there's always nuances and little things that you never knew about yourself until you find them. But I think so many of us are looking to generate success based on somebody else's definition. And I think that's what helps me with my stupid challenges is that I'm not trying to be successful in other people's eyes i'm judging myself by my own yardstick by my own ruler by the only thing that i've defined for me to be successful as 
and I go back to so um, at the beginning of this year, I had three gyms and a martial arts gym as well. And I thought that more gyms, more money, more accolades was success. And it wasn't until I had all of that when I was like, actually, that that isn't what I want. That isn't success to me. That success is more quality relationships, more time with my family, more um, more time on me rather than chasing a bank balance or a numerical number that is really just a number on a phone. Um, so I, I sold it and kept just one of the gyms. So I sold three gyms and kept one. Um, because you don't know what you don't want sometimes until you've got it. And sometimes, unfortunately, people will spend a lifetime chasing a particular performance goal or a race win or a 5K PB, and they get it, and there's still a feeling of emptiness because that was what never actually fulfilled them in the first place. So, yeah, I think if we can stay in our lanes and actually generate our own measurement of success, then we can probably all be a lot more fulfilled with the lives that we live. Um but yeah, I, I know that happy life and fulfillment and all those buzzwords are obviously thrown around quite a lot. So probably uh, without angering any more stoics, probably uh, <laughs> stay away from that one. Is it common for you over there to say by measure by your own yardstick? Because you guys don't go by yards over there. I don't know if you caught that. We don't. Okay. That's a that's like a British thing. Uh, I, I use it quite a lot, whether... Others use it. I couldn't confirm, but um, now I use it. I, I don't know where I got it from, but yeah, it must have been from our friends over the pond. Uh, yeah, it must be that that uh, I, that hit me just right for some reason when you said that. I am um, Bracken. I don't know if you know this about me, but I've written a few screenplays in my day, and I don't know if you know this. I have a friend who wrote screenplays. I'm getting somewhere with this. And when we wrote these screenplays, there's always something called the all is lost scene, which is like oh, the guy's trying to chase the girl and he totally fucks it up officially and he's never getting her, it's done. And then somehow you feel there's no hope, but then they end up together in the end, right? And and I want to know like what your all is lost scene was with your 48 days, like your, your true like, oh no, like I don't know if this is going to happen. Did you have an all or lost scene in your 48 yeah. days? And what was that? Yeah, so I am denied about it as to whether I actually said about this publicly, but I've ended up talking about it publicly because I think it's important. But I actually quit um, on day 28, 29, something like that. It was around the high 20s, maybe even day 30. And uh, my Tiban had massively flared up. I couldn't put any weight on my left leg. I was basically hopping on one leg using my poles. And I was running on my own. Um, I had an ambassador that was meant to run with me that he didn't turn up Um turned his phone off, couldn't get hold of him. So I was running on my own in a hell of a lot of pain, could barely stand. It was taking me 30 plus minutes to do a kilometer. And um, so I had a van that I was traveling around the country and, and I was half a mile from the van and I was 13 miles in. So roughly the halfway mark. And um, I texted my other half, Hannah, and I was like, I'm done. I I literally cannot finish this marathon. I can't do another 13 miles. Come get me. So she she was about an hour and a half away. So she's like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'm on my way. We'll, we'll talk about it when I get there. So I got back to the van. And uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with a guy called Chad Wright. Um, it's the American ultra runner over over your way. And his one of the big things and mantras he always puts out is don't die in the chair. Um, and that popped in my head on more times than I can care to remember across the 48 days. And I was sat in my van. And I was like, I can't die in the chair. I can't I can't make this decision sat down. 
I've got to get up and get moving. And I thought, right, instead of trying to do another 13 miles, let's just go out half a mile and come back. Let's just do one mile. Let's turn a bigger goal of 13 and a bit miles into a smaller goal. Let's just focus on this one mile. So I went out, did a mile, sat back down. I was like, right, okay, you're back in your chair again. You said you wouldn't die in the chair, do another mile. So I went out, did another mile, came back. And um, before we knew it, I was about 20-ish miles by the time Hannah turned up, possibly even a little bit more. And uh, she just said to me, is it, is it time for me to take you home? And I was just like, almost like an absolute pathetic mess, unable to walk, unable to stand. And I was just like, no, I'm gonna, <laughs> if I can start another mile, I'm going to do another mile. And I just continued that process till I got to 26.2 miles. And then we got to the end of it and she turned around and she's like, is it time to go home now? And I, I've, I tried to live by this mantra that don't die in the chair. So don't make the decision about quitting while sat down, whilst in a position of comfort, whilst nothing hurts. Make the decision whilst you're moving. Then the next stage of it was if you can start, you can finish. So if you can start that first 10 steps, you can then manage to get another 51,000 out of your body and finish that marathon. And if you can finish that marathon, then why can't you start the next day? So all those three things put together, I was sat on my edge of my van. I was like, well, I can't quit because I've just done 26.2 miles. I'm sat down again. And I said, if I can finish today, then I can start tomorrow. So sorry you've driven all this way, but no, I'm, I'm going again. We'll go tomorrow. Um, and then tomorrow was a better day. Not much better, but a little bit better. And then progressively, we obviously overcame the issue with my ankle and my tiban and, and continue to move forward. But that was where I just had to use three very simple mantras of moving forward. And um, yeah, and I think there's a lot of kind of chest beating and peacocking from a lot of people that do these challenges. Oh, I never thought about quitting. It never even entered the, the my mindset and the whole like, for want of a better description, the David Goggins type attitude. But for me, I think consideration of quitting, stopping and not taking another step is a real thing that all of us face, no matter how good an athlete we are, no matter how calloused our mind is or no matter how strong we are. But it's what you do with that thought that matters. Um, so, yeah, my all of lost scene was there sat in my little van 13 miles in thinking, fuck this. I am done. Oh, shit. No, I'm not. I need to do another mile. I can't make this decision sat down. And yes, that was the story of it. And then once I'd done that, I, in my own little weird way, I was like, well, if I can overcome that, then mm-hmm. I can I can overcome anything this challenge throws at me and I'll, I'll see this through. Well, it's, it's not relatable to never want to quit. It's relatable to quit and it's powerful to realize that quitting doesn't mean you have to quit. Like sometimes there's some power in a momentary quit. Like that's it. I'm done. All right, I got that out of the way. Now I'm free to continue again. But people need to know that being confronted with a momentary quit is not the end of the road. I'm glad you decided to talk about that because I think it's more relatable than saying, you can't hurt me, which is a great model until it doesn't work for you anymore. At some point, you can hurt me. Until something hurts. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And I think, think, and once I said it out loud, like I said earlier, Data coming in, it's just data. How you process it is up to you. And that data coming in in my head, it was easy in my head to say, I quit, I'm done, I'm finished. But I think the spoken word and saying something out loud is more powerful than your internal monologue quite often. And I remember when I actually rang Hannah and said those words out loud and I heard myself say it and I was like, "I'm no, I'm not, no, no, I'm not done. I'm not quitting. 
and that and hearing myself say those words is what got me out of the chair and got me to do another mile and another mile and another mile and i think embracing those thoughts and feelings isn't wrong i think we have to embrace them and we have to be aware of them but like i say it's how we use that data that matters and what we do with those thoughts and what we do with those emotions it's my desire to quit emotional based and 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 that point of time yes it was because i started to think well i started to do the maths i was like well if every kilometer takes me half an hour and i've got 21 still to do and then the time i've already taken which means i won't get finished in the seven and a half hours which means the whole challenge is lost and then you you work backwards you're like well no it isn't like that's my own arbitrary number that i put in place and i never even announced that i wanted to do everything under seven and a half hours i only announced that when i realized that i was able to do that because i wasn't 100 sure i'd be able to do it truth be told um and yeah i think you can then deconstruct the emotion to look at it essentially without yeah without the emotion and then make a better decision based on actually confronting that fear and that thought and that emotion i like that yeah something um Something people may think, John, is, oh, well, I could I could never do this because I have a job and I have a wife or a husband and kids or or things like that. So they think, well, here's this John guy. What does he really have going on? Nothing going on. You know, that's why he can do this. Well, you own five companies, if I'm not mistaken, or own five companies or run five businesses. You have a wife and kids, full time responsibilities, like beyond full time responsibilities. And here you are being able to do this. I just want to know how you navigated that for 48 damn days with having such a busy professional life and family life. I saw a lot of pictures of you with your wife and your kids. And obviously they were, they were there with you on the journey, but like navigating that all had to be almost impossible. How did you do it? Yeah. So just in the interest of clarity before any of my, any British listeners listen to go, he's not married. Um, not my wife. Um, my bad. My partner. Um, before you married me off there listen i've been with my i've been with my girlfriend for four years and pretty much everybody does that to me so i get it (laughs) Uh, now you put pressure on me thanks (laughs) (laughs) my bad so your fiance keep keep downgrading but no so so we've yeah i mean long long story short we've we've got a, a blended family so she's got two children from a previous relationship i've got a kid from another relationship we've got um a little one due in january um so yeah home life is incredibly busy incredibly manic it's like we've got two dogs um three kids one on the way between us and and everything else so that that was a real challenge trying to still be a father figure a partner and all of those things but I'm very blessed that Hannah's incredibly understanding of how much these challenges mean to me and how much they make me a better person outside of the challenges. So she completely understood why I was doing it and was prepared to sacrifice essentially seven weeks of our life together for me to go out and do and do this challenge. So that was the first thing. And I think having an understanding partner and someone that understands why you're doing it is, is huge. And I think, um, so yeah, just to publicly put on record that I owe a massive debt of thanks to her for being so understanding and supportive of that. So that was part of it. But essentially, the kids are on school holidays. So it wasn't much fun for them to come and watch me run a marathon every day. Um, so they were only with us uh, on weekends. But in some respects, in the weekdays, it was easier because all I had to do was get up and run. On the weekends, it was more difficult because I had I felt like I was um, letting them down by going out and running and leaving them and, and so on and so forth. So it was that emotional roller coaster that came with it as well. 
Um, so, yeah, so that was one element, but ultimately we have a really open dialogue on why I do these things. So next year I'm doing the Marathon de Saab and then I'm rowing the Atlantic. And so she understands it and she understands that that's kind of what she signed up for by being in a relationship with this dickhead that I am. But um, so, yeah, so that, so that, that was the family side. Um, the business side is, I always, I always say I'm lucky, but I'm not lucky. I've worked very, very hard. And I have five companies that have very, very good people, very, very good teams, and will largely run without me interfering or being involved. So that's not to say I'm not involved. Day to day when I am around and at home, then I have a very active role within those companies. But they were all at a position where I could essentially leave them uh, be with just some checking in now and again for seven weeks um, and they could run without me without the buildings burning down and coming back to bankruptcy so yeah that that was a challenge but there was a lot of work that went into that preceding that and and again it's like that whole idea that you'll always fit with a task to the time frame that you've given yourself so I'd set myself the task that by the time I start the 48 all of my businesses were self-sufficient and didn't need me for two months um, and we managed to get that to run and we didn't take any backward steps whilst I was away and the team did brilliantly and, and, and everything was great. Um, and then, yeah, like there's, I wear a lot of hats, business owner, partner, father, stepdad, all the friends, all the other stuff that comes with it. But it was my circle and those around me understand that part of me is these challenges and part of me is what I do. So they were all really understanding, really supportive and really helpful. And, I can empathise. I have I had a few people that said, oh, well, if I didn't have to work for seven weeks, I'd be able to do it. And and again, I'm not saying you couldn't. I'm not saying I'm the only one on this bloody little rock of ours that we call England that can run 48 marathons in 48 days. I'm just saying I've managed to create the perfect storm that means I've got a lifestyle that allows me to attempt it, a mindset that means I'm too stubborn to quit and I'm naive enough to start and put all those three things together. And And there we are. It's a dangerous combination. <laughs> yeah. So at some point that naivety is going to bite me, but um, we'll keep riding that wave until we crush. <laughs> the, the planning side of me immediately latches on to all the thought that would have to go into your setup. What shoes am I going to use? What gear am I going to use? How am I going to fuel both before, during, and after? Where am I going to sleep? How am I going to transport? What's my most efficient route through the counties? All of that. And we did an episode a few weeks ago talking about how to analyze a race, do an after action report, and use it to improve yourself for next time. Well, you essentially got 48 consecutive opportunities to do that. And I'm curious to know your plan going in, how it looked on day one, all that needed to change based on daily occurrences to the, the routine you had on day 48, how that process morphed. Yeah, so... I, I always looked at it as tomorrow doesn't matter. It's today that counts. Like I think it, with all these big goals and big tasks, I think if you get, you can get massively overwhelmed with how much you've still got to do, how many miles you've still got to run, how many marathons are still ahead of you. So for me, it was like, just make today the absolute best that I can. Once I finished it, debrief it, what went well, what went badly, what can we make better for tomorrow based on my physical and mental state, geographical location, route, people running with me, so on and so forth, and then developed. And by the end of it, I was very particular and specific in what I needed, how it was going to go, and I, I dictated what how I ran. Whereas when I started, mm. I allowed others around me to dictate pace, dictate route, dictate um, 
how many climbing feet, how how hilly the route was. And whereas by the end of it, I was like, this is what I need. This is what I'm doing. If you can't provide that, that's cool. That's not a problem, but that's what I need to do. And that's what I'll go and find. Um, so it became very specific in how to approach each day. And so I don't think I've mentioned, but um, six weeks out, I had a stress fracture in my foot. Uh, well, it was actually, <laughs> of course. Yeah. So obviously let's just throw another curveball. So it was actually eight weeks out. Where in your foot? uh first metatarsal the big player okay yeah yeah so not if we're going to choose one that we were going to damage we wouldn't choose that one but nonetheless why not make it a bit harder Uh so um yeah so eight weeks out i felt something move in my foot and then two weeks later we got it diagnosed and it was likely stress fracture or bone stress either one both similar diagnosis so i hadn't actually ran for the six weeks leading up to it i just done a quick 10k a couple of days before. So even going into that first marathon, I was just like, Poor, I don't know whether we're going to get through one. And my biggest fear with the whole thing was being that guy that made a really shit attempt. Like I didn't want to be the guy that's like, oh, I'm going to do 48. How many did you do? Three. I quit on day three. So that was a real thing that weighed heavy on my mind. But actually it was the best thing that could have happened because – I was doing 26, 28-hour training weeks at one point, and I was sick of running. I'd built up so much time on feet. I say 26, 28-hour running weeks. They weren't full running. A lot of it was hiking, walking, time on feet, so on and so forth. But I was sick of time on feet. I was I was done with running. And actually having six weeks away from it was one of the best things that could have done because I went into it looking forward to running instead of hating my life. But it was a necessary evil to get my body physiologically ready, but mentally I suffered. But the point where I'm going with this is the way that we combated it was essentially those first marathons. We thought, well, how can we reduce the stress on this foot? So instead of doing a full 26.2 mile loop or a 13 mile out and back, it was let's just break it down into four 10Ks and a little 2K finish, like a victory lap. So we set up the van, we can set up basically an aid station. So all I have to take for 10K is me. I don't have to take water, camel packs, hydration, food. I just have to get myself 10K there and back, and then I can refuel, go again. Um, and so that ended up being the theme of the whole 48 marathons. And it actually ended up being incredible at bringing more people to the party to engage with the 48, because in, in the end, we had over just over a thousand people that ran with me throughout the, the 48 days. And I'd say, the, I think there was only 50 that ran a full marathon. So if we were going to run a full marathon every day, we'd have gone down to what, 5% of the total people we could have engaged so having 10K loops meant that so many people could come in, do a 10K loop or dip in for a couple, drop out at the halfway mark or come, like some people would run the first one, then run the last one. And in the end, it made such a, a systematic approach to running a marathon because in my head, it was just four 10Ks and a victory lap and we're done. Um, so every time I was running, it was just, just get this 10K done. That's all you need to worry about is just doing this 10K. So, yeah, by the end of it, it was really systemized. It was a flat 10K loop, quick hydration, food stop, go again, another 10K, repeat times four, just four reps of 10, job done. Um, but, yeah, I think there was a lot of – when we actually look at how regimented we were at the beginning versus the end, there was there's quite the comparison but um, I think it took a strength of character for me to build that confidence and say no to people where the route just wasn't 
going to work either it was like trail running or um potholes in the ground and things like that that were just injury risks that didn't need to be taken um so yeah i think that self-reflection after every marathon definitely helped and that allowed us to systemize it and then create a, a fail-proof system come come the end did you ever want to run alone john half the reason i run is to be by myself so did that ever wear on you at all having people around or was that like a necessary like that was only positive all times no, it, it swings in roundabouts. Like there's, I, I whenever I had people running with me, I always made the point. I was like, like, don't feel like you can't talk to me, but don't ask me how I am. <laughs> don't ask me if you see strapping on a body part. Just don't ask about it. Because <laughs> as soon as you ask about it, you're bringing it back into the front of my mind, and and I don't want it in my mind. I want it somewhere else. So it was. I just had to set ground rules for people. So I'm actually fully deaf in my left ear. So just little things like that, like operational, like as like. If you're talking to me, talk to me on my right because I can't hear you in my left. And it was just me being really precise in the information I'm giving to people, um, making sure that it's essentially repeatable and systematic. And I had a system that I could go through. And a few people came out to me and ran with me on multiple days, and they all made the same comment. as like, that's the exact same opening speech you gave when I ran with you last time. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> replication is key. Like systemization when you're this tired is really important. But now I said to every person that ran with me, it made a massive difference because the thing is like for a lot of us, I'm the same. Like I, when I started running, it was to get a bit of alone time running without music, like exercise the demons. It was like just a little bit of time in your own head, but then do that for 40 hours a week. And suddenly there's not that many demons to exercise. And you, you start going into some weird and wonderful places and visiting things that you never thought you needed to visit. And it just ends up getting pretty surreal and weird. So after the first couple of weeks, I was incredibly thankful for people that ran with me because it just gave me something different. And and if we go back to the whole point was raise awareness, like me just running around on my own, wasn't raising any awareness. It wasn't raising any money. It was just some stubborn idiot running around the country. Um, so yeah, I, I massively, if, anyone's listening that was an ambassador around with me you genuinely made the 48 possible because it kept me going it kept me not thinking about the pain I was in and kept me moving forward and was genuinely a motivating factor in getting that day done on that day whenever I was running with anybody else because I didn't want to let them down if they've taken a day off work they've come to driven out some of them drove three four hours to come run with me so the last thing I was going to do was let them down by not finish the day you are our second straight guest to mention the word admin, the admin work you have to do in order to stay on top of performance. And I, if you don't mind sharing, because I think a lot of the ultra listeners in this podcast will get something out of it. What were your mandatory admin lists during, before, after that you had to stay on top of in order to perform when your body was going through something it's not necessarily designed to handle well? Yeah, so, um, yeah, admin. It's a buzzword that I repeatedly use in pretty much every part of my life. So I think in, in, little imperfect actions will always aggregate out into progress. And I think a lot of us don't do the admin that we need to do because it's boring. And we will always – the thing is, when you start self-reflecting on the things you need to do, you actually find a hell of a lot of stuff that you actually need to do day to day. And I don't think people like to actually understand the amount of little things that go in 
to performance that make them better. But like I say, when you're doing 48-day challenge, you've got no option but to assess that. So for me, a lot of my admin was self-assessment. So first thing in the morning, it was sit rep. How do, how do I feel? How I actually am I? What actually hurts? What do I think is hurting? Because I think they're two different things. Um, whilst lying in bed. Then it was, right, now sit up. Another sit rep. <laughs> now what hurts? And then finally standing up, right, another sit rep. Where am I at? And that then just then set the course of action for the next hour. So if it was plantar fasciitis was playing up, right, get a lacrosse ball in there, get it moving. If it was hamstrings and quads, right, do some light stretching, start trying to mobilize, try and get them moving. So it was situational report. Where am I at? Where do I need to be to be able to get in my van and drive wherever I need to drive to to go and do my marathon? Um the next bit of admin was essentially making sure I had all my kit. So I had all my trainers, multiple pairs of socks, waterproof, wet weather gear, all the food that I needed, all the hydration uh, liquids, fluids and everything else that I needed. So I had like a, a shopping list of stuff that was in the van, making sure I had all of it. Um, and I messed up on one day and forgot a spare pair of socks and I paid the price with blisters. So again, it was a time to reminder, don't fuck up your admin. Um I actually found the drive to the the venues really helpful because most drives are anything from one to three hours. Um, and that helped me just go through that kit check, that personal check. Where am I at? What do I need to do today? What kind of pace will I be running? Formulate my plan based on real life feedback rather than a pie in the sky. Oh, today I'm going to run a four hour marathon. It was actually based on how my feet feel, how my kiddies feel. I reckon I'll run this pace and this will be my plan for the first 10K, then the next and then the next and then the next. Whilst I was doing it, the main admin I was always going through is um, essentially things like hot spots in my feet, um, blisters, anything sore, anything that needed strap in. It wasn't just man up and wait till the next time I stop. It was stop, deal with it there and then, and then move on. Um, so it was being really religious in that approach to it because I thought that me ignoring a blister for 5K that then became a blister was then going to be a problem for me for days or possibly weeks rather than just losing five minutes by stopping and dealing with it and then moving on. Um, and then the admin, when finished, was the same. So it was another sit rep, right, what new now hurts? Um, how much have I sweated? How much have I eaten on the run? How much do I need to put back in the system? Um, what's the quickest way of getting home so I can get as much sleep as possible? Um, and then when I got back, another final sit rep at the end of the day. So every day I inspected my feet. I, li- I literally took half an hour some days, bursting all the blisters, draining all the fluid and trying to look after my feet. I'm sorry to interrupt, but you spent you spent every night at home during this? Uh, no. So sorry, when I say home, I mean the base. So okay. I set up a regional, a regional base. So I had four bases around the country and then I drove out from those bases to the counties. Uh, mainly because of the COVID risk. So the less people's houses or the less hotels I stayed in, the less chance I had of coming into contact with somebody that might then potentially infect me. Um, that sounds like a horror movie, that, doesn't it? But anyway. Um, 48 days later. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so every night was a thorough inspection of my feet, body, and then getting as much sleep as possible. So it was just my own... When I say admin, it's just my own personal checklist of where I'm at, what do I need to do to move forwards, and then after doing the activity, where am I at, and then what do I need to do to put me in the best possible position to then do it all again 
tomorrow. Um, and also being prepared to sacrifice a little bit of time here and there for the bigger picture, which I think a lot of people neglect because they're so focused on that, their, their activity that they're in right there and then. Instead of forgetting that there's still another X amount of days and X amount of miles still to go. Yeah, something that has come up this last week with a couple of clients of mine, I coach endurance athletes myself, and uh, one had done a 12-hour Tough Mudder Toughest overnight, and another had done a big A race. And then they couldn't get themselves going afterwards. We talk about like the post big event slump. Like all you had to do is focus and the simplicity of it is kind of beautiful at times, right? And then you come back to the world and it's complicated and you get caught up on your five businesses and you finally can spend time with your kids and all that. But inside you're kind of like in a, like you had this task and now you're here kind of empty without a big picture goal how has the, the come down been from the whole event? Because that can be a hard time. We've talked about it a few times on the podcast, but I don't think it gets enough credit. So I'm just curious, have you experienced that? Have you not? Have you dealt with it? Have you have that sort of thing? Yeah, so I've been fortunate to experience it in other other walks of life in, in my strongman career. Um, I remember winning my first British title, stood on the podium and think feeling empty. I was like, well, I've... I've just won this thing that I've been spending years trying to build towards and and now what? So I've known from day one with all these challenges because of my experience in other sport is that reaching the end doesn't give you this euphoric feeling like so many people would expect you to have. It's very much a, oh, well, now I've just lost my focus. Like that, the, that, the, the 48 project was nearly a year year-long project in some respects 18 months because the idea kind of started to be planted months before that so when it was finished it was a a sad moment it was almost like the passing of a friend it was like oh all that time effort and energy and we're done um but for, because I knew that was coming um I planned accordingly so um I joke that I forgot to cancel my half Ironman. Like I knew in the back of my mind it was there and I purposely ignored looking at the cancellation date um, because I knew that that would give me something to do, um, to focus on. So that for the, the last two weeks, that's been my focus is trying to recover, recover hard to be able to, to swim, <laughs> bike, and then go run a half marathon in, in two weeks' time. And then after that, like I say, it's bigger picture stuff. So the... The thing is, like, the, running the 48, for me, with the food poverty element is only the start. The next step is then anyone can raise money once, and I I will have largely exhausted my network of donations, and I'm aware of that. So I can't just keep doing stupid shit and try and raise more money for the charity because people will stop donating because I just get fatigued and, oh, John's doing another stupid thing. Um, so for me, the, the, the next challenge is what we do with that money that we raised. So how do we make a positive impact? How do we get those ambassadors to now run their own events? And so the mission isn't over. The 48 isn't over. The 48 was just planting of seeds. The next bit is how we then nurture those seeds, grow them and build essentially a forest around the country that allows us to then make a difference off the back of the 48. What is the legacy of the 48? It's not the act of doing it is done, but the legacy now needs the work. Otherwise, it was all for nothing and 15 thousand pound for the miles for mills charity and well sorry twenty thousand pound for the miles for mills charity twenty thousand pound for the food bank charity in the grand scheme of it it's not going to do a huge amount if we don't actually make the most of the legacy of the 48 
But aside from the charity element, I've already positioned myself with a pretty hectic schedule next year. So I'm running the Marathon de Sar, which will be my first official ultra. So that'll be uh, 250 kilometers through the Sahara Desert over six days. Um, I'm actually going to compete in Strongman again at under 105 kilo body weight. And I've also got a full Ironman in the same month next year. So I'm going to try and um, hybrid athlete is a bit of a buzzword in the industry at the minute, isn't it? Um, you must be a lot, you must be a lot of work for your coach. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I am. It, it takes a brave man to program me, but um, so this isn't a, a dig or a disrespect to anyone that tries to call themselves a hybrid athlete, but there's a lot of people that are out there that are saying, Oh, I'm a hybrid athlete because I'm strong and I can run. But strong is relative. And to me, strength is tested in competition. So I want to be strong in a tested environment. So I've decided to go back to Strongman and compete at a lighter body weight and compete at under 105. Whether I'll be any good, who knows? Part of the adventure, part of the challenge, we'll, we'll see where we end up. And then after doing that and the Ironman, I'm then rowing the Atlantic with three friends in December of next year. So that post come down has very much been dealt with by having really key objectives and drivers both charity wise both personal wise both um challenge wise plus i i'm expecting uh my son in january so um i've got plenty of stuff to focus on plenty of stuff to look forward to um and yeah there was a, a sadness that it was over a sadness that the simplicity of my day and my life had disappeared and I was having to cut the grass and build flat pack furniture and take out the laundry again. But also the 48 was brilliant for reminding me that the one thing that I missed the absolute most aside from my children and spending time with Hannah was making my breakfast, sat on my guard, on my patio in my garden and eating my breakfast with a cup of coffee to start my day. And it just reminded me how much of the little parts of our life we take for granted in the pursuit of these grandiose, bigger things. And until you can't do those things, you realize how much they're meant to you. So, yeah, it allowed me to really embrace and enjoy those moments because I'd missed them for eight or seven and a half weeks. Um, so that definitely helped cushion the blow of, of the 48 ending. It's so good for people to hear that you must plan the come down. As, as strictly as you plan the buildup, you must plan the come down. Otherwise, you're, you're jumping out of plane without a shoot. I like your strategy for that. Even though, would, would your coach have said a half Ironman's what we should do two weeks later? Probably not. But long term, no. is it less damaging than being depressed or aimless? Probably. Yeah, absolutely. And like I've said to my whole support team, because my whole support team have said, like, I don't think you should do this half Ironman. I think... I see why you're doing it and I see psychologically why it's going to help you. And I see it's giving you a purpose with your recovery rather than sitting there and feeling like you should be going to run today. But I think when you're dealing with, again, I don't like saying it this way because it makes me sound like I think I'm different to everyone else. But when you're dealing with people that do challenges like this, you're not dealing with a normal approach to what people think is possible. So if you'd have said to most people, could you run 48 marathons and then three weeks or four weeks after finishing do a half Ironman, most would have been like, absolutely not. But they'd have also said 48 marathons wasn't possible. They'd have also said a strongman transitioning into running a marathon wasn't possible. So, And it's not that I'm stubborn enough to say 
fuck you to everyone that's telling me I can't do it. But it's just I personally feel that I'm capable of doing it. And and like you say, there's the, the psychological benefit is huge because it's given me something to focus on. Time-wise, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to have more time and have an eight-week building instead of a four-week building. But it is what it is. I can't control that date. But also physiologically, like it's given me an opportunity to keep the body moving. If I was going to write a training program for myself that took me off my feet to try and give me some active recovery that wasn't running, I'd be swimming or biking. And that's what I need to do to prep for half Ironman. So, yeah, it's all it's all relative. And as you say, I think if you don't plan for the after, then it will hit you like a ton of bricks. And I've been there before with Strongman. And, um, and yeah, it's made a huge difference by being able to to have that, uh, the other side already choreographed, knowing that there was stuff that I was going to move back into. Um, something, um, this, this would typically be sort of the point in the podcast here where we say, John, what's next? You know, what are you doing next? Right. We're kind of getting towards the end here, but you just outlined that for us. And I sort of have a left field question for you. Um, something I've come to realize is that people who do things like you do and methodically go through endeavors are typically pretty well studied. And I notice, uh, a full bookshelf behind you. Now those books aren't all just for show, are they, John? No, they um, they have all been read. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What are some of the books up there that have been influential to you? Out of curiosity, we talk training and theory and books once in a while on the podcast, so I'm just a little bit curious. Not to pivot too much, but I, I want to know what do you got up there. Anything good? Uh, yeah, plenty good. But- the Daily Stoic. Um, it's my my all time my all time favorite. <laughs> no, the Daily the Daily Stoic is actually on there, but um, it's not something I read daily. No, um, I, I I don't really read fiction. A lot of the stuff that I read is um, business related or mindset related and, and things like that. Um, I think one of the things I'm reading at the minute is Winning. Uh, I forget the gentleman's name, but he wrote Relentless from Good to Great to Unstoppable, and that's been really eye opening. Around is that Tim Grover? Yeah, that's the one. But that, that's that been really interesting for me because I think sometimes you can feel quite selfish and alone in your approach to what you perceive winning or excellence to be. And that's actually been really eye-opening to think that actually it's okay to feel sometimes that I am selfish and that I am essentially relentless in my pursuit of me trying to be the best I can be because actually that's quite a normal thing for high-performing people, even though I, I say that wincing at myself, calling myself high-performing. Um, but, yeah, I think those are kind of the main books I tend to, to move towards, things that are actually real-life examples of people that have kind of been there and done it and 
um, and so on and so forth. The most recent book I read actually was James Cracknell's autobiography because he's done a lot of the things that I'm actually trying to replicate with uh, Marathon de Saab and the, the Atlantic Row. But, um, but yeah, plenty of good books, but putting me on the spot. Um, the, the one I always recommend to everyone is Shoe Dog, so the story of Nike. Mm. Have you read that? Um, because no. as much as that... What, as what is it called? Shoe, what is it called? Shoe Dog. Um, so it's the story of the creation of Nike and the 30 or 40 year um, ups and downs. Ni- Ni- Nike. 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 Sorry. Nike. I forget I'm talking to Americans. Nike. <laughs> Nike over here. The, the uncivilized okay. I, didn't, I didn't know that <laughs> yeah well I, I think some people probably call it nike over here but yeah the majority of the brits will call it nike but um yeah it's a story of of him and all the trials tribulations and the amount of times you need he went bankrupt and and it was this idea that like it takes a long 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 time and there's a lot of highs and a lot of lows to be successful and even then how do you define success um and yeah that's the book i recommend to every uh, client I work with from business owners to aspiring athletes because I think there's so many lessons in there that success isn't a straight line um, and that guy's worth billions that company's obviously one of the biggest in the world so the fact that that wasn't a straight line success what chance do we have as mere mortals so yeah if, if you're going for a book recommendation I'll, I'll chance my arm on that one and say shoe dog the story of the creation of Nike well John, you started with stoicism. You hit it a lot throughout. And I guess my final question I'll post to you comes back to that. And and it's something that I've noticed in working with athletes for a few decades. And that is that there is a sweet spot in terms of toughness that often coincides with a lower intelligence. And this sounds really disparaging to people, but the more well-read you are and the more you put into it intellectually, the more you are susceptible to lowering your own capacity on race day. Like we all have our 100% performance, which is if we are in our best fitness and we just absolutely put it together on that day and that's rare. But the only thing holding us below that are generally self-imposed things that we can control. Anxiety, stress, how we perceive our competition. Like you talked about, someone else just pulled a bigger weight than me. Oh my goodness. And you drop lower and lower. So as a well-read, well-spoken by all means, a, a intelligent man, how do you ensure with yourself and other people that you train and coach that they are not holding themselves back by overthinking things? That's the nicest thing anyone said about me in a long time. Thank <laughs> you. Um, I, think, I think it's this element of, again, another cliche, but paralysis by analysis. And mm-hmm. I think the more reading you do, the more you're opening yourself to different ideas. And I think that's a brilliant thing. I think we should all be, I don't think any of us should be too stubborn to think we know everything. We can always learn more. We can always add more strings to our bow, more more bullets to our arsenal. But I think having two or three steadfast methods to deal with life, chaos, the uncontrollables, I think is key. And those two or three things may change over time. They may be race specific. They may be uh, situational specific, but it's not getting too bogged down in the 50 or 60 different books that you've read that year. It's focusing on the two or three things that you know work for you. And I think this, this idea that mental resilience can be read in a book, that fitness can be found in the pages of a book and, Mental resilience is like, to me, is like physical fitness and you have to build it and you have to maintain it. And as soon as you stop training it, you'll lose it. 
and not necessarily lose it completely, but it will diminish. So for me, I part of the reasons for doing the 48 is that I wanted to battle test two or three of these theories and lessons that I've learned to see whether they're, they work. And not only that they work in a situation, but they work over sustained abuse and pain and suffering and doubt and fatigue and all the other shit that came with running four-year marathons. Do those theories stand up in a battle or a competition atmosphere? And they did. And they a few of them were tweaked and changed and a few things were rethought of in different ways and reframed. Um, but no, I think a lot of well-read people end up almost believing everything they read and then they can't actually take anything from what they've read and apply it productively to their outcome. And I always say to everyone that's ever, oh, you should read this book, it's brilliant. It's like, well, tell me why. And if they can't, a lot of them can't even answer that question. It's just like, oh, there was a few light bulb moments. And a light bulb moment is a moment in time. But if you don't actually take that lesson and apply it and use it and test it, how do you know it's even relevant to you? Um, I, I mentioned David Goggins earlier, like the things like the cookie jar. Uh, I'm I'm the biggest, not the biggest, but anti-David Goggins attitude because I think that's a perfect way of building a fairly lonely lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's still parts of his rhetoric and parts of the things that he says that I think are usable. The cookie jar is one. I use that on more than one occasion throughout the 48 of taking out of my cookie jar a comment or a negative um, message or someone that said I couldn't and remembering and feasting on that moment and paying a big fuck you back to them. So that doesn't mean that every idea that you read is true. It doesn't mean that every idea isn't effective. You can all take little things from little little places. But I guess the point I'm trying to make, and I've waffled a little bit there, is use sim- simplify what you know, because at the base of it, we're all very simple creatures. And a lot of these books say the same things in different ways. Um, so it's just a case of drilling down to the methods that work for you and then sticking and standing fast by those key lessons and key drivers and key methods that you have to to keep moving forwards. I think, Bracken, you call that uh, what you keep all your receipts, as you say. Yeah. That is your version of the cookie jar. Um, John, I want to respect your time. I know it's nearing in on 11 p.m. where you're from. So I know you're. it's late night where you're at. Um, so I'm, I'm, there's more questions we could ask, but I know it's getting late. So... Um, I just want to know if people want to follow along with your journey, where they can maybe go to look to to dive into your next cause, how they can follow you, all that stuff. Like, where's the best resource for people to do that? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. The um, there's there's two. So my personal Instagram is probably the the easiest for everything that I do, um, and that's just underscore John dot Clark. Um, you'll see my big ginger face on there. I'm sure it's easy enough to find. Um, I found it. Yeah, there you go. And um, if you're interested in the charity elements and the Miles for Meals, then that's just Miles, the number four, Meals underscore UK. Um, if you want to see the legacy of the 48 and, and what we're doing as a charity and how we're trying to have that impact um, off the back of me being very stubborn and running quite a lot over the summer. Um, so, yeah, underscore John dot Clark or Miles for Meals underscore UK. Fantastic. Well, I'm I'm fascinated by your rowing across the ocean. That is that has always intrigued me. I track all those attempts that people make, so I'm I'm thrilled that you're doing that. And I'd obviously love to chat with you before or after. But for now, thank you so much for coming on. 
No, thank you for having me. Really enjoyed chatting. And um, yeah, I always say at the end of every podcast, if anyone that's listened has any questions that we obviously didn't cover today, please don't hesitate to message me. I'll always reply to every single message request and anyone that reaches out. So if there's anything we didn't cover and you want to know, drop me a message. Yeah, you were actually very responsive to me in my annoying uh, requests over the last week or two. So I, I, I can back that up. (laughs) <laughs> no, I, I appreciate I appreciate you guys uh, a giving me a platform to share why we did what we've done and and share the message of the charity. Um, so I'll always get back to anyone that wants to talk to me or wants to share an interest. Because at the end of the day, without social media, is meant to be social, right? So if we're not actually being social and engaging with people that want to chat, and why are we even on there? So, um, but no, I really appreciate the platform you guys are giving me to have this conversation today. And um, yeah, hopefully. Uh, You'll have me back on after some of my other stupid challenges and we can we can chat through those as well. All right. I have a, a bucket list Kirk doesn't know about. It's Norseman. Nice. Yeah, good good look at getting into it. <laughs> so maybe, maybe as we build both you and I our fame notoriety, we can we can jump off the ferry together someday. Yeah. I've I've actually got a friend that I think has managed to get a place there. So I'm gonna start pestering him to get okay. to get me a place. So uh yeah. <laughs> So I'll, 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 yeah, I'll mm. keep you updated if I find us an in. Okay, I'll, I'll do the same. Good, man. Thank you. Thanks, John.